You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This morning, our scripture passage, the text for our sermon is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 28. It should be on page 460 of our Pew Bibles. Page 416, continuing on to page 461. We're still in book one of the Psalter, this book that highlights the kingship of God and his rule over his people. So we come to this, again, another wonderful, aren't they all, another wonderful psalm this morning for us to consider and hear the glories of Christ found therein. So hear now the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God for you and for me from Psalm 28 of David. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I recently read a history of the city of Hudson. David Hudson was a remarkable man. In 1799, the year after his father died, and the same year he had an, a rather intense religious conversion experience, he set off from Goshen, Connecticut, to come all the way to what is now Hudson, Ohio. 48 days after his journey, after 48 days of journey, he arrived with his son and some men he hired to help with the journey. They built the cabin, they planted crops, and then David, his son, and one man headed back to Goshen to get the rest of the family and others who were going to come and settle this new territory. Finally, on May 28, 1800, the first long-term residents arrived in Hudson. And the first thing that they did was to have a, quote, service of thanksgiving and praise to Almighty God for bringing them safely through the perils of the voyage. Saves us from ourselves. That is a mistake of eternal proportions. This cluster of Psalms, Psalm 26, 27, and 28, are very similar. Similar themes, similar structure, similar ideas. 
And it reminds us again, as we said over and over, the Psalms are intentionally arranged. They're not just thrown together in a haphazard fashion, although it might feel like that at times. If you go in our hymnal, you look at the table of contents and you see our hymnals are arranged by topic. You see at the beginning, the holiness of God, and you see throughout the work of Christ, you see the church later on, these different topics that our hymnals are based around. And we see a small section here of these three Psalms grouped together, similar to how our hymnals do that. And they all have these similar elements. There's a problem from the outside. There's evildoers, whether they're they're speaking false rumors, spreading deceit, or whether they're physically assaulting and attacking, whether they're armies outside. There are these outside evildoers. And because of that, David seeks God's help. And then ultimately, they all conclude in a positive way with David finding refuge in God. So we've seen this with several of these Psalms and we come to the third in this set here. And we see the same thing described in this Psalm. Verses one through five, it's this prayer for help and a petition. And embedded in that verses three through five is a description of these evildoers. These evildoers who are somehow attacking or, 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 or oppressing David in some way. And then verses six through nine is this praise. The, the, the end of the Psalm is David coming to the Lord, thanking him for hearing him and being his saving refuge. One of the other echoes in this psalm is Psalm 1. If you remember Psalm 1, Psalm 1 lays out two ways. There's really ultimately two paths we're on in life, either the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked, the one who despises the Lord and his end is destruction. But the way of the righteous, the Lord knows that way. They are, as Psalm 1 says, blessed. And so we see that same two ways going on here in Psalm 28. We have David and the righteous, God's people, contrasted with the wicked. And what David is is doing here, I think, he's zooming in with this psalm. On on one aspect we're going to highlight, he's zooming in on what really is the fundamental difference between these wicked and these righteous people. And here's a hint. It's not that the righteous people don't sin. It's not that the righteous people have earned salvation, but he's zeroing in on what really makes the difference. What's a wicked person and what a righteous person is. We'll see the works of the Lord reveal the gospel. So regard and trust him. The works of the Lord reveal the gospel. So regard and trust him. And we're going to look at uh, this topic in two points this morning. First, the wicked disregard. And second, God's people trust. So these two kinds of people, these two ultimate categories, the wicked disregard and God's people trust. Let's first look at the wicked disregard. David is in some kind of distress. We don't know what that distress is. It's often left somewhat mysterious to us and that's good. It generalizes, allows us to apply this even to different things in our lives. And what he does, he begs God to not, in verse three, to not drag him off with the wicked with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbor while evil is in their hearts. He knows that they are wicked and they have an end. That end is destruction. Or as he says in verse one, they go down to the pit, the pit of judgment, pit of despair, where God's justice is shown. And David says this judgment is right. He's arguing that it is right for the wicked to be punished. 
In verse four, he asks God to give to them according to their works, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the works of their hands. Render them their due reward. We all have a sense of justice. When something's wrong is done, something needs to be done to rectify it. And David is saying, yes, even on an ultimate level, every wrong must be ultimately punished by God. That is right and just. God is holy and just, and justice must be done for every sin. David is asking God to redress evil with just punishment in his heavenly courtroom. And it's important for us as we read this to not abstract this. We can't say this is just some poetic idea that doesn't mean anything in real life because this is the state of all of us. It's not just the state of other people. This is the state of all of us apart from Christ. At one point in any of our lives, we can say this wicked person was me. And apart from Christ, that would be me. It is real. It may not feel like it. Sometimes it may like, and we're reading the Psalms, may, may feel like we're reading something from Tolkien, a mythical land that's out there, but it's not. We can't let the poetic nature confuse us. The judgment and future is real. But David zooms in on the root of the problem in verse five. What is the root of the problem of these wicked people? It's not just evil actions. He goes deeper. Our actions are not the ultimate problem, although yes, there's justice for evil actions and sinful actions. The ultimate problem is our sinful hearts, our sinful desires, and our will. David says this, this is the the, the nub of the issue. They do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hand. They do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. That is the central issue here. That is what leads to wickedness. That is what the core of unbelief is, not regarding the works of the Lord. And it's interesting, we can compare that back with verse four, how David is highlighting the works of the evildoer. They regard their works more, the work of their hands. They regard those more than they regard God's works and they will receive judgment for that. So what are the works of the Lord of which David speaks? What are they? You maybe have an insurance contract where acts of God are excluded from coverage. If an act of God, that earthquake or the tornado or something of that effect, some kind of uh, catastrophic event, there's no way of preventing. Our insurance companies call that an act of God. That's not what David has in mind. That's included. The acts of God are broader God's not just intervening here and there whenever there's a major hurricane coming through. We can step back and look first at creation and God's ongoing providence. The works of God begin with creation. And and in Romans 1, Paul says that because of creation, God's attributes can be clearly seen. We can see God in the world he's made. We all, Paul says, know God. Even the unbeliever knows God to some degree at least to the point that it condemns them because they're not faithful to that God. But creation shows us God's attributes, God's glory, that God exists. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaims his handiwork. There's his action, his work. The skies are showing us God's work. We need to regard God's work, creation, and of course, humankind. Other people, other humans, are a work of God as well. We're made in God's image. 
We actually are God's image, reflecting his glory with faculties and skill to create, to discover, to explore God's work of creation and then his ongoing providential care. As our catechism says, his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all of his creatures and all their actions. That's God's work of governing. It's God's work of ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. His ongoing providence and care for us. God is acting. In the world we see in every event that happens, God is acting. This is his world. We are his creatures. Creation declares that. We are but creatures, but we suppress the truth of him. And that's what David is saying. These wicked people suppress this truth. They refuse to regard the God of creation. Think of technology, for example. What does this do? By its nature, it's something new. It's an advance. It's something that helps us, but it makes us feel as if we are gods. Our world is trying to tell us, people in our world are trying to tell us, no, don't regard God You are a God. We have technology to make us faster, more efficient, more powerful, have more control. And it's subliminally teaching us that God isn't the God of technology. God isn't the God of the created world. God isn't the God of creativity and ingenuity. Look, it's all about men. It's all about us. Look how great we are. That's the wicked person's view. And we, even those who are in Christ, we are tempted always to turn our eyes away from the one who made all that there is. So a failure to regard God's work of creation leads us to become gods in our own eyes. And that's the fundamental problem with these wicked people. They think they are gods because they refuse to acknowledge, they refuse to regard the works of God. They take all the credit for it and they have no business doing so. So God's work of creation is one work of God. The other big category is God's work of redemption. God's work of redemption. The gospel has always been a proclamation of God's redemptive works. The first seed of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, where God promises that snake will be crushed by the seed of the woman that he's going to send. There will be a snake crusher to reverse the curse, to make everything right. God promises that as soon as the fall occurs this first word of redemption. But then immediately after that, God doesn't leave it at a word of promise. God acts, makes a redemptive action. And what does he do? He kills animals and uses the skin now to clothe Adam and Eve who are naked and afraid and ashamed. And so he covers their shame with the death of another, a substitute already. We see this redemptive act from the beginning of scripture. God is acting redemptively to save his people. I call all people to salvation. And we can go on and on looking at God's act of Noah and redeeming Noah and his family from the flood. Abraham making the covenant and himself passing through the pieces that were cut in two. God himself taking the covenant curses upon him. Joseph, how God uses Joseph to act to deliver the whole family of Jacob from famine. Moses, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. We just read of this and. Exodus 15, recounting the works of God, regarding the works of God, praising God for his works and what he's done. We could go on and on, but we often talk about the gospel. And almost in some ways, we reduce the gospel to some words or an idea, a message. 
And yes, it's true. That's what it is. But the gospel is not an immaterial thing. Salvation is not an immaterial thing. Something that's on the level of mere words and ideas that just drops out of the sky. God's redemption and the gospel itself testifies to redemptive works God has done. The gospel is good news because it is backed by God's works. The gospel is an explanation of God's redemptive works. If there's no act of God, there is no good news. And the gospel itself is a statement of God's acts. In 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul lays out the, the basic elements of the gospel, what is it? It's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the redemptive work of God. Acts 2, we read earlier, this day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church and the Christians began speaking in other languages that they didn't know beforehand, and there were all kinds of visitors to Jerusalem from all over speaking very various languages. And all of them heard a Christian speaking their language. And what were they speaking of? Acts 2.11 says, they were saying and teaching the mighty works of God. That's what the Christians were speaking of. It's God's mighty works. That's what they were regarding. That's what they were holding up. And those who refused to acknowledge the mighty works of God are what David calls the wicked people. You may have heard of a theologian named Herman Bovink. Herman Bovink, he has a, a very famous and, and fantastic four or five volume systematic theology that was just translated from the Dutch about 20 years ago. A lot of scholarship, a lot of people love Herman Bovink. But he wrote a wonderful introduction to the Christian faith. Uh, probably a lot longer than an introduction we would like to read, but it's geared for those before they come and profess their faith. And it's a wonderful survey of Christian theology, what Christ has done, and it's called The Wonderful Works of God. I love that title because the whole point of this book is he's recounting the wonderful works of God, and he gets it from Acts 2.11, our translation, The Mighty Works of God. And in the introduction to the book, Bavink says this, with these wonderful works of God, we have in view the whole economy of salvation, which God achieved through Christ. The spirit was poured out precisely so that the church would come to know these works of God, to glory in them and to thank and praise God for them. Herein lies the thought that the Christian religion does not exist merely in words, in a doctrine, but that it is a work of God in word and fact, which was accomplished in the past is being worked out in the present and will be fulfilled in the future. The content of the Christian faith is not a scientific theory nor a philosophical formula of an explanation of the world, but a recognition that confession, a recognition and confession of the wonderful works of God, which have been wrought through the ages, cover the whole world and await their fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Christianity is about God's actions. All of creation is about God's actions and it points us to his glory, his grace. A failure to regard God's works, particularly his work of redemption, casts us back onto our own evil works. And that's the state of the wicked. If you fail to regard God's works, you are now cast back upon your works. That's all you can plead in the throne room of heaven is my works and our works 
will lead us only to judgment. Our works are not sufficient. Our works are sinful and an affront to God. And so if we do not acknowledge God's works of creation and particularly redemption, we're left to our own evil works. So do you regard the works of the Lord? Do you look to them? Or these things, but just a mere idea that some crazy people have and enlightened people need no longer consider. The works of the Lord, the wicked disregard them, but we come second to God's people trust. God's people trust. And we come to verse seven, where David writes, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts. This is another way of saying that God's people regard the works of the Lord. The wicked do not regard the works of the Lord, but those who trust the Lord, that act of trust is a regarding of the works of the Lord. What does this mean? To trust. Maybe we call it faith, right? Faith is essentially trusting God, trusting in his work on our behalf. It's all of the same idea here said in various ways. What are some of these aspects of trusting the Lord? First, to trust the Lord, to regard his works, first we have to apprehend God's works. We have to see them. We have to get our head up and look at God's works. We have to look at the world, look at man's creativity. Stop navel-gazing and look at the glories of God's works. Seeing other people as people, not as items to use for my own advantage. So we apprehend, we see God's works and then not just see them though, we have to acknowledge God's works. We see these things and say, that bears the fingerprint of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. We must see and acknowledge that this is God who has done this. The world is catechizing us every day teaching us every day that God does not exist, that we are self-sufficient, we can solve our own problems, that there's no room for a God who is involved with his creation. The world is suppressing the truth of God's works and wants us to pretend it's not God who's doing all things. But as we see everything good in the world, we must see it is God's work. The world declares his glory. Man's creativity is a reflection of God's creativity. Other people are God's image and worthy of honor and respect and to be praised. They spare the stamp of the creator. So we must acknowledge, not just see the works, but acknowledge this is God's work. But then we must even go further and understand God's works rightly. We must understand that God is the one behind creation who's made all things, who governs all things. And we understand that it's for his glory, right? We must understand creation is for God's glory. Creation is not about me and what I can take and what I can do and how I can use and abuse God's creation. It's all about God himself. But we must, this takes on special importance as we come to God's acts of redemption. I know I've heard some atheists who acknowledge that there was a man in the Middle East named Jesus around 33 AD who was crucified by Roman officials, who was buried, and then three days later he rose from the dead. 
And when you ask those atheists, how did this man rise from the dead? Why don't you believe in him? The response is, there's a lot of crazy things we can't explain in this world. Right? So they acknowledge God's works, but they don't understand it rightly. We can't just say Jesus rose from the dead, but we must say what that means. What that means is God has offered a way of salvation. He's provided a way of salvation by his own son who's died and risen again for us. So we must understand the works of redemption rightly. And understand this is God freely offering salvation to all who would believe. So then we, as we understand God's work works rightly, we must then trust him. So we see and apprehend, we acknowledge, we understand them rightly, and then we must trust them. We must rely and rest upon God's works, what he has done for us. And this is more than a mental exercise. This is a posture of, of, of putting myself into the hands of Jesus Christ and saying, I abandon all hope, anything that I can bring to this, and I trust him alone. So I've said before, it's putting 100% of our eggs in that basket, saying, I cannot do this, but I trust him to do it for me because of what God has done. The promises of the gospel are backed up and grounded in his actions. And so we take it as such. We see they're backed up in space and time and history. Christianity is based in history. Without the history of Jesus Christ, without him coming and dying and rising again, we have nothing. And we trust in the one who has done it. And this kind of trust, this faith, it does then lead to a change of action if we're being consistent with our faith. And this is the work in our lives once we look to Christ for justification, then an ongoing sanctification occurs. As the Lord is working in us to conform our whole lives to that profession of faith that we have, to make us look more like Christ, help us put to death sin. And this kind of trusting is what David is getting at when he speaks of regarding the works of the Lord. Ultimately, it is this. The works of the Lord are there on display in creation and redemption, but the wicked, they disregard it. They say, I don't need it. I don't want it. I refuse to believe it. I suppress the truth. But what do God's people say? They humbly receive it. They receive and rest upon God's work for salvation. The difference is, do you regard the works of the Lord or not? Do you look to Jesus Christ? You notice like, this doesn't say the righteous are the good guys and the wicked are the bad guys. The righteous are the ones who have it all together and they're not sinning, you know, 90% of the time they're good. Like that, that was, they, that, they're good most of the time. The wicked, maybe they're 90% evil. No, it's not about that. It's about fundamentally, where is your hope and your faith? What are you resting in and trusting in? David doesn't say, I've been so good in your eyes that I am worthy of your rescue. but he's simply resting in that extension of the promise of Psalm 2. That Psalm 2 that along with Psalm 1 sets the foundation for the rest of the Psalms where it says, blessed are all who take refuge in the royal son. Blessed. 
And David then takes that theme in verses seven, eight, and nine and unfolds what is the blessing that we receive? The one who trusts in the Lord, who regards the works of the Lord, what is this blessedness? He says in verse seven, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts. I am helped. My heart exults. And with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. What a joy he concludes with. After wrestling with the evil and those who are, who are chasing after him, oh, how he can end on such a wonderful high note. Oh, that our hearts would sing with lofty words like that. Do we not desire this, this to be the, the, the song of our own hearts? How does that happen? How do we end up like David in Psalms, in verses seven through nine? How do we grow in our faith and come to a place like David is here? Well, first, David is praying. He's seeking the Lord's face. And I don't know about you, if you've ever come to, to prayer meeting, it's one of my favorite things we do as a church. We gather and we pray. And at the end, I say, why don't we do this every day? What a joy it is with God's people together to seek the face of the Lord. We do it in our, in our closets at home. We do it with our family. We do it corporately. We pray and we seek the Lord, but there are times and moments like David's life where we seek intentionally. We go and, and cast ourselves at the, the foot of the throne of grace. We come to the Lord. We wrestle with the difficulties of our lives. And it's amazing how the Lord uses that to mold and shape our hearts. He grows us in our trust as we are like David and laying our cares before the Lord. But second, what David is doing here, this subjective appreciation of our faith and understanding of our faith and growing in joy and holiness, this subjective growth for David is grounded in the objective works of God. His subjective experience is not grounded even in his own faith or how strong his own faith is. It's not grounded in anything he has done. It's grounded in what God has done in Christ Jesus for his people. And he can look to that fact, the fact that Jesus died for sinners, the fact that Jesus rose again to give us life. And he takes that to heart, says, I can trust the Lord. I look to that. I look to what Christ has done. These objective acts are the ground of our hope. But if we continue to disregard these acts of the Lord, creation and redemption, if we disregard those, we are left like these wicked evildoers who will go down to the pits. But the Christian life, we still grow day by day by more fully embracing and regarding the work of the Lord. So let's put the work of the Lord before us. Let us marvel at God's grace for us. Let us marvel at Jesus Christ, that he would humble himself to become poor, that we who are poor might become rich. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Let us look to Jesus, him, the author and perfecter, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Let us look to him to grow in faith and joy and Christlikeness. But our God is not done acting. 
Our God is still at work, as Bavink alluded to earlier. In our lives, there's no despair too dark that he cannot penetrate. He acts today to keep us, to preserve us, to draw us nearer to Christ, and his acts all direct us to that final act, that act of Christ's return. And at that moment, at that day, all of those who regard the works of the Lord will say with David, he will bless us and carry us forever. So brothers, let us spur us on one another to love and good works by setting our sights on the works of God. That is our foundation. That is our ground. That is our chief joy. Let us look to him in prayer. Lord, you are gracious that you would come condescend to space, time, and history to accomplish the salvation for sinners such as us. Father, we are grateful. Grow us in our regard for your works and our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your salvation and the grace of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we look to him because apart from him, we have no hope. In his precious name we pray, amen. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.